0: The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. Our Father and our God, we thank you that you sent your only son, Jesus Christ, to the cross. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you willingly offered yourself up. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that on that cross you declared that we could be as sinners forgiven of our sins, that we could be washed clean, that a new status could be given to us, that we are no longer sinners, but children of God, no longer slaves, but sons and daughters. And Lord, we have been invited into your family, and we walk with you in your home. We are cared for by your grace. We are led, and we want to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. We thank you for this reminder. Every time we dramatize this meal, we we remember the death of Jesus. And so, God, we come boldly to you. Jesus, thank you that you are high priest, that we can come to the Father through you, that we don't need any other human to come to you, that we can come boldly before your throne. We receive the grace that we need. We thank you that you've heard our confession. And, Lord, we receive now and thank you for the bread which represents your body, Jesus, and for the cup which represents your blood. May we be thankful as we receive in your precious name. Amen. It says that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, that he took bread, and then he took the cup. And he said, that The bread is his body broken for us. And the cup was the, the new covenant. Reminder that his blood shed. And so, right now, wherever you are, uh, would you join me in partaking of the bread and of the cup? And let's be thankful together. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. And uh, I'm thinking right now about how we were in the moment uh, with Jesus, the risen Lord who's interceding on our behalf at the right hand of the Father. But we were also in the moment with several brothers and sisters in Christ, right, from our church family and beyond that were joining us online, as well as a few that are in this room right now. And uh, it is so good to be in the moment with our Lord And today we're going to be continuing our talk about Jacob in the sermon. We're going to be talking about how moment by moment God was leading Jacob. Before we open our Bibles, I just want to remind you of uh, let you know about a survey that we would like to do as a church family. The board and the staff of our church are talking a lot and planning about how and when ministry will continue in different ways as we resume somewhat of a normalcy in our in our city. And um, so we're going to be offering a survey that you will receive an email if you're part of our church family. Uh, if you want to be part of it and you're just recently part of our church family in these last few months, but you haven't actually physically been here. We've, we've met a few of you online. Uh, then please send in your email and your information to our church office and we'd be glad that you are included in this survey. And there's just six questions, and we're just wanting to uh, understand how you're doing in terms of uh, missing the community of faith, and how you're doing in terms of how we will resume that community expression as the laws lift and as we are able to gather more often in different ways. And so we ask you to please take note of that. And uh, let's take a look now at our scripture. <clears throat> Excuse me. We've been studying uh, the life of Jacob, and we so far have seen that uh, his birth, he is uh, one who has uh, kind of surprised us at times. We saw how he was a heel grabber from birth. We saw how he, he tricked his brother, gave him a pot of soup and t- stole his birthright. We saw how he lied to his father and stole the, the, the birthright of uh, the blessing of his brother Esau as the firstborn. And, and we see this man who is so much in the rough that God has set his love on and is going to use for his purposes. And then we see him on an encounter with God as he's fleeing from his brother Esau who wants to kill him. And he's, he's, he has his first personal up-close encounter with God. He calls the place Bethel, house of God, because he has met God there. It's his wake-up call, a spiritual wake-up call. And today, we're gonna to see the tables turn on Jacob. We're gonna see that he meets his match, that the deceiver gets deceived. In, in a moment, we're gonna look at this. And in order to mature Jacob's faith, what we realize is that Jacob not only needed a God encounter, he needed a self-encounter. Jacob needed to see Jacob the way God sees Jacob. And that's the problem with all of us is that we really don't see ourselves the way that God sees us. And so we're needing an encounter, not just with God, but with our true self. And so enter Uncle Laban. We're gonna meet him today, a man who is the, becomes the father-in-law to Jacob. And God brings out his big chisel once again And starts to chisel away at the character of Jacob to get him ready for the purposes that God has for his life. Now probably some of you have seen this called the Johari window. It has four quadrants in it. There's this open self which has information that everybody knows about you and you know about yourself. There's this blind self though. This information about you that you don't know but others know. Usually, if you're married, your wife or your husband will maybe inform you of some of those blind spots. Then there's the hidden self, information about you that you know but you don't want others to know and you don't let them know. And then there's that unknown self which nobody knows except God about you. Well, today as we go through this scripture and look at the life of Jacob, I want you to think about the blind spots of your life. I want you to think about the self that you don't know fully about yourself and how it is that God will lead you into areas of life and circumstances and meeting people that is designed to help you see yourself for the way you really are so that he can show you how to bring that self to God and truly grow. And so let's take a look at a scripture this morning. We're just gonna read a few verses from a passage in, in Genesis chapter 31. And um, those of you who are in the room with me, would you stand as we listen to God's word? And those of you at home, you can decide whether you seat, sit or stand. But we're going to read chapter 31 of Genesis, verse 11 to 13. It says, Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, Here I am. And he said to me, Lift up your eyes and see, all the goats that mate with the flock are striped spotted and modeled for I have seen all that Laban is doing to you and I am the God of Bethel where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me now arise go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred may God bless his word you may be seated I jump into that scripture and it might not make sense to you right now but in the next minutes it will it'll make sense I want to start by talking about what is called plot and subplot. These are two terms that are used often, of course, with regards to uh, playwrights and and books and theater. And a plot is simply the series of related events that make up the story. The plot of a story is the big idea, the big storyline. And of course, a subplot is really all about the subordinate ideas, the things that are underneath the big idea that feed the big idea, inform you of the main event. In some ways, it's sort of like a side story that feeds the full story. That's what a subplot is. And in the rules of writing and in the rules of theater, the subplot of a story must always support the main plot and not compete with it for the spotlight. You can take subplots away from the main story and it'll still be a main story, but you can't take away the main plot and still have a story. All you have is a bunch of disconnected subplots. That's not gonna work. And so a subplot that can stand alone should be its own story. And uh, oftentimes that's what happens. I used to have a sign on my office door and it used to say, it said, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And that's the plot. That's the main thing of any uh, work of art. Now, I share this idea and this illustration for two reasons. First of all, because if we're going to understand Jacob, if we're going to understand the meaning of Genesis and why it is that the author put the life of Jacob and all the different stories in there, we need to differentiate between what's the main plot of Jacob's life and what are all the subplots that we can get lost in the weeds on. And the second reason that I share about it with you is because we have to ask our own selves what is the main plot of our life and what are all the subplots that feed the main story that God is writing in our lives. If I were to ask you what is the main plot of your life and what are some of the subplots, how would you respond today? Or maybe I should say it this way. If someone were to follow you into your life for one month, 30 days, 24-7, just everything about you know, what would they come out saying, this is the main big idea, the main story, the main plot of this person's life, and these are all the subplots, Would they come out and say, well, family life is the main plot in this person's life, or his vocation or her job is the main plot of their life? In different seasons of your life, they might come out and they may conclude that caring for little children is the main plot of your life, or they might conclude that caring for the elderly parents that are living with you are the main story of your life. Or it might be that a certain season, overcoming a disease is the main plot of your life, and everything else is subplot. It just depends on the timing, doesn't it? What is the primary storyline of your life? Well, I think if we are going to think soundly, biblically, and theologically, we have to conclude that our relationship with God is the main plot of all of our lives And everything else is subplot and subtext. I believe that Jesus was indicating that when he said that the first and the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. That's the main plot of every one of our lives. It's a vertical plot. It's love God with all that you are. And then the subplots that all feed that is, and love your neighbor as yourself, the horizontal stuff that goes on. Do that justly and mercifully and so on. And so I know that we do not tend to live that way. We do not tend to live in a way that shows that somehow the main about my life is God in every fiber of my being, in every dollar spent, in every hour spent, that God is the one, the main plot is God. I know we don't tend to live that way. In fact, so often what we do is we relegate God, the main plot of our lives, off to the side. We often Uh, treat him as though he's very much of a subplot we have feet of clay we are tied to this earth we live momentary monetary physical tangible sensory horizontal lives we often forget the vertical we reduce God to a subplot or we push him so far out of the script of our lives that he's hardly recognizable anymore I get it. I'm a sinner just like you. I get it. What does God do about that? Does he take you and say, cast away, not following my plan? No. It's not the God of the Bible. God of the Bible is so merciful, slow to anger. Slow to anger, rich in love. And so he is slow in his work in your life, too. And he works a little by little, chipping away, to get you out of the weeds of your subplots, which you think are the main thing about your life, and get you back onto the main plot where he is writing a story of your life. God is still writing your story. Quit trying to steal the pen and trust the author. I love that. Saw that this past week. Let me read to you a quote from an author by the name of Paul David Tripp. He says, thankfully, I am not the author of my own personal story. Your story isn't an autobiography either. Your story is a biography of wisdom and grace written by another. Every turn he writes into your story is right. Every twist of the plot is for the best. Every new character or unexpected event is a tool of his grace. And each new chapter advances his purpose. Amen. I love that. What an incredible place we live as believers in Jesus Christ. We can trust in the sovereign hand of God writing our story. And all the unexpected events and people and things that go on, we can trust that he's somehow in and around and over all of it. Now, I know this flies in the face of the worldly attitude. But this is the truth. This morning we're going to look at three subplots in the life of Jacob. But before we do that, I just want to remind you, the scripture reading that we just had a little earlier, chapter 31, verses 11 to 13, that's where we see the main plot. It's when God says, okay, Jacob, I've been doing all this over here for 20 years to remind you that this is the main plot of your life. So let's take a look at the three subplots and see what God is up to in Jacob's life. And uh, to begin with, uh, we're gonna look at the first plot, subplot, Jacob's marriage. Let me say at the outset like, that like many things we read of in the Bible, it's really messed up, okay? This family is really messed up. Many of the Bible characters that God used were imperfect people that chose imperfect means to accomplish their own ideas, and, and God, in his love, in spite of them, continues to work out his grace it should give us encouragement as we think about how we can be so messed up and how often we rebel against God and we don't follow his purposes and as we look at Jacob going to find a wife we see this imperfection in display You know the story well, so I don't need to rehearse it too much, how Jacob goes and he, he meets Rachel and he falls in love with Rachel and he agrees to Rachel's father Laban that he will work for seven years as the bride price for this wonderful woman that he's fallen in love with. Comes to the day of his wedding, and uh, these are Jewish weddings that were a week long, and comes to the first evening of the day of his wedding, and behold, he wakes up, and at the last minute, uh, Leah is swapped in instead of Rachel. Now, uh, Laban has deceived him. He says, well, no, we don't have that custom. We, we let the first one marry off before the second, and so on. But uh, it's hard for us to grasp how it all took place because the customs of courtship and wedding and all that was so different. But Jacob agrees to work another seven years for Rachel. So at the end of the week of wedding to Leah, he's allowed to begin another week of a wedding feast that will, will lead to marrying Rachel. And so then he works 14 years for his two wives. And again, let me say to you, bigamy, and polygamy are not condoned by God in the Bible. Just because they're in the Bible in a guy like Jacob doesn't mean that God was happy with it. Marriage designed by God is one woman and one man leaving their parents, cleaving together, becoming one flesh, and then children being born in that that relationship. But we see God's people disobey God, and then they, they deal with the consequences. And the irony of this story in this first subplot about the marriage of Jacob, the irony is, is that if you look between the lines, you'll see that it harkens back to the deception that Jacob had over his father. You'll remember that Jacob substituted himself, the younger, in for the older brother, Esau, and stole the blessing of Esau. What does Laban do? He substitutes in the younger the older for the younger. And so the the tables are completely reversed because he is reaping what he has sown. And um, though we, we see that Laban is the conniver that does it, again we see that God is over it in the long story of Jacob's life, chipping away at his character, showing him himself and helping him to see. The second plot, subplot, is Jacob's children and you'll notice that at the end of chapter 29, these two sister wives of Jacob start having children, and they have a lot of children. Rachel and Leah, as well as their two maid servants Bilhah and Zilpah, also have children. They have 12 sons, and then one daughter, Dinah. These 12 sons are mentioned by name because they become none other than the 12 tribes of Israel. And so we know that they're prominent in the rest of Scripture, we understand that. It all begins in chapter 29, verse 31, and in chapter 29, verse 31, we read that um, God looked upon Leah because she was hated, it says, because Jacob loved Rachel, not Leah, and God looked with mercy on Leah, and he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. What a character study Leah would be in this 21st century of ours as we look at character development, and so on. The oldest daughter of a younger sister who always got more attention than she did, forever living in the shadow of Rachel, thinking that one day she'll be married and be done with Rachel, only to find that the same man marries both of them. Twisted plot. And in marriage, she is haunted by her inability to gain favor from her husband. Even if she gives him several sons, which was a status symbol in that culture, still she is not loved like Rachel. You'll notice that each of the names that she gives to the children born are are very interesting because they tell the story of her pain. You'll notice it begins in chapter 29, verse 32. She, the firstborn is Reuben. It, it means, it sounds like this idea of see a son in Hebrew. Look, look at Jacob, I've born you a son. The secondborn is Simeon, which means heard. God has heard my prayer. The thirdborn in chapter 29, verse 34 is attached, Levi. Levi. Now I'll be attached to my husband, she thinks, no. The fourth one is called Judah, praise. Now everyone will praise me because I've had four sons that I've given to Jacob. Each of the names tells the story of this woman's pain. After Leah has given Jacob four sons, what's happening in chapter 30, verse 1, is that Rachel is getting envious. She's getting angry. She tells Jacob to smarten up somehow, and he says, am I in the place of God? And so... Rachel does something that harkens back to Abraham and Sarah. She takes her maidservant and says, Go sleep with my husband and uh, represent me as I have a son. So Bilhah goes and sleeps with Jacob, and the boy born is named Dan. Why does Rachel call him Dan? Because it means vindication. I've been vindicated now, she says. And then the same maidservant bears another boy named Naphtali which means wrestling and the idea in verse 10 I have wrestled with my sister and I have prevailed this is a sibling rivalry at its worst Leah is not to be upstaged though and so she has Jacob sleep with her maidservant Zilpah Jacob's a very busy man in these first seven years of marriage And uh, she has a son as well, and Leah gives him the name Gad, which means good fortune. And then Zilpah has another son a little later on, and his name is Asher, means happy. Women will call me happy now. I have so many sons. You can tell that uh, it's a twisted family life. And uh, even further into this, you'll notice that one day, Reuben, the eldest born of Leah, comes from the fields with some mandrakes, which is kind of like a potato. And it was believed in the ancient world to have medicinal purposes and to be a fertility kind of enhancement. And so Rachel comes along and says, uh, <clears throat> if, you, if you'll if you sell me those mandrakes, you can have Jacob for a night. I don't get this. I honestly don't get this. but But that's what happens, and it says in the Scripture that... That that day, verse 16, uh, Jacob comes in from the hot day in the fields, and Leah meets him and says, I've hired you with my son's mandrakes. I mean, he's just a stud, it seems like now. Incredibly strange. And uh, the cultural norms are so different in this time. The family is so dysfunctional, it is very hard for us to enter into this and understand it. But Leah sleeps with Jacob and conceives a son. His name is Issachar, which means wages. I've hired you, and I've got what I want. And then another boy later on born, and his name is Zebulun, honor. She has now given Jacob six sons. And so, verse 22, it says, God remembered Rachel and listened to her prayer. And for the first time, Rachel has a boy. His name is Joseph. God has taken away My shame, Joseph, my reproach. And then the last son to be born will be Rachel's son, Benjamin, which perhaps is a little bit later. Chapter 35, verse 18, talks about him. So, what do we see going on? We see 12 sons being born. And again, we we have this strange sense of divine retribution, poetic justice. Somehow, it it seems that God intended him to marry Leah, but he marries Rachel as well. And um, Rachel's barren at the beginning. Leah is having all the children. And the one that carries on the family line, the holy seed of Abraham, is Leah's son, Judah, of course. The two sons that, of course, are more important than any are, Joseph, And Judah, and we'll see that in the rest of Genesis that is what continues. Let's go on to subplot three, Jacob's escape. And in this passage we see that when all the children are born, perhaps except Benjamin, we see that that Jacob has worked 14 years for uh, his his two wives, bride price, and then six more years for the livestock that he has. So it's 20 years of work. And um, Yet, in the midst of it all, the two women have not received anything from their father from this bride price. He has hoarded it all to himself. Laban has hoarded. And a turning point comes in chapter 30, verse 25, when Rachel finally has Joseph, a son. A woman was more likely to be kept and cared for by her husband if she had children, so that's why it would have been inappropriate for Jacob to leave and take Rachel with him. Uh, prior to her having a son and so they decide to leave and when Laban finds out he offers him wages now please stick around I'll pay you now after 20 years and and so Jacob takes him up on it and says okay here's what I want every speckled and spotted and black sheep and goat will be mine and anything else other than that that ever you find in my flocks are going to be considered stolen well it's a great deal for Laban and so he agrees to it and then he tricks Jacob and he actually tells his sons to take the, the speckled and spotted sheep out of the flock and go three days journey that way. So Laban is still trying to trick and deceive Jacob. But Jacob, in an act of absolute, what we would consider superstition, takes, begins this practice which was held in the ancient world in the, in the flocks and herds. He began the practice of taking poplar sticks And bark from almond trees, and putting it ahead of the troughs when the animals came to take water. And it was generally then that they would mate. When they came to drink water, they would mate ahead of the troughs. And the ones that were stronger animals, he'd put these sticks up, and they would mate, and they would come out speckled or spotted. And when the weaker animals, Jacob noticed, come to the trough, he would take the sticks away, and they would mate, and they would be white or black and solid color. And so in this way, again, following a superstition, we read later on that God was the one that was blessing Jacob's flocks. And so we read that in time, Laban became jealous of Jacob because his flocks were growing like crazy with strong animals while Laban's flocks were weak and less. And so finally, the, the, the animosity grew to the point where it was the time for Jacob to go back to the promised land and he decides he's going to leave he goes to Rachel and Leah and uh, we read in the scripture basically they say to Jacob listen I know we know dad's cheated you all the way through Uh, he hasn't give us given us anything from the bride price that you've paid those 14 years of labor so as far as we're concerned we've been sold to you we're yours do whatever you think God wants you to do and they pack their bags and they form a caravan and they head off to the promised land. Laban hears about it, he's angry, chases after them, but on the way, God tells him, don't you lay a hand on Jacob. And so finally, when he arrives, they make a covenant to just part ways and be at peace. Now what's going on? I just tried to rush through three subplots. You know, Jacob's marriages, Jacob's children, Jacob's escape. And what's it all about? Well, all these subplots for 20 years, God is working on the side here to prepare Jacob for getting back to the main plot, which is go back to the promised land. I have promised through your father Abraham that in you will become a mighty nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through you. The Messiah will come through you took 20 years to work on some of the blind spots, maturing his faith, teaching him lessons. And the question that we must ask when we study a text like this is what's God doing in our lives? What's the lessons that God's teaching us? How is God working in the subplots of our lives and taking us into the real things of his work and his growing our faith, his shaping our character, his helping us to be more like Jesus Christ. I read this past week about a young woman, a single woman of about 30 years of age. She was writing in a blog, and um, she was wondering if she would ever get married. Her parents were getting older. She was wondering if she was going to remain single the rest of her life. She was asking God, and she was very open in this blog that she was writing. She was, at times, tempted to see marital status as her main plot instead of the subplot. And here's what she writes. Not yet knowing the answer, I just want to flip to the last page and find out. As my parents continue to get older, I wonder, how much time do I have left with them? I find myself like a detective looking right and left for signs and clues of what's going to happen in my life. How is the story going to end? I just want to read the end of the book already and avoid all the in-between chapters that seem so long. It's as if, like, like Eve, I believe the enemy's lie, that God is withholding something good from me that I need, and I need to know it. I need just one peek at the last few pages of my story. Have you ever felt this, like this woman, as she writes? Have you ever felt like, you just want to take a look at what's ahead, like where's this going? You're, you're, You're stuck in this subplot. Many people are stuck in conditions and places of life. They feel like the 20 years off of the main road. I sympathize with you. Many people find themselves in jobs or, or places with physical health. Other things that you don't get to see the end of the story, though. We can't, we can't do it with our own lives like we do with Jacob. We can just open up the Bible and go to chapter 35 or 6, and, oh, well, that's how it turns out. Doesn't work that way, does it? Maybe you feel that way this morning like someone else you're not Someone else you're not sure you can trust is writing the story of your life, and I want to tell you this morning, you can trust Him, God, a loving God. You can trust Him. There's nothing that you could imagine to make out of your life that would be better than the plans that God has for your life. And as hard as it is to trust Him right now in in the subtexts and the side plots of your life, You can trust him. He's going to get you back on track if you'll stay focused on him. And so I want to to conclude by thinking of three things, uh, three lessons maybe that could be take-homes. And the first one is that it requires real faith to believe that God is at work in some of the subplots of our lives when you can't see him requires real faith. I understand that. And one of the things that I would say as part of that is don't believe the lies that your entire life consists in one of those subplots. Some people get get off on that. They they, they start thinking that, well, this is the condition of my life right now. This this must be the main event. This is what my life is all about. It's not. They forget that God's got purposes for you because they're all messed up in the weeds of subplots. It requires faith to believe that God can use those subplots to work on you to get you ready for the next step in the story. Secondly, it requires even greater faith to believe that God can still be at work in some of those subplots when they were completely wrong choices that you designed for yourself. Some people have this attitude that, well, I took a left and God said go straight and now I guess I'm cooked. That's not God, that's not God. God took a left with you and he's gonna work in that subplot, he's gonna work in that side story, he's gonna work in that painful decision you made that was wrong and sinful and selfish. He's gonna work in you, he hasn't given up on you. You might have given up on you. He did not give up on you. You need to believe that. I can't say it any other way. You need to believe that. You need to not believe the lies that are whispered in your ear. And make God in some other image. This is the God of the Bible. He loves you. He's with you. He's never stopped working. And then thirdly, It requires great patient endurance to wait upon God to reveal more of the main story in your life. And what is that main story? The point of the main plot of your life is to transform you to become like his son, Jesus Christ. We all, with unveiled faces beholding as in a mirror, we we are being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18. We are being transformed. It's it's an ongoing process. We are being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. That's the main plot of your life. Whether you've been on the earth for 10 years or 98 years, this is the main plot of your life. God wants you to continue to go back to the main plot and realize that all of this stuff over here and all of that stuff over here is really shaping you, pointing you back to feeding the the main idea of your life. I like what Soren Kierkegaard said. Soren Kierkegaard said, We... Life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards. And and so if you're younger, you, you may look at some of the things that you're facing, you say, I just don't understand it, Terry. I just don't understand why God would let this happen. And those of you who are more further on in age, you have stories to tell because you can look back And you can say, I I now see why God let me do that. Or I now see how God didn't want me to do that, but I did it anyway, and here's what God did through it. And you, you begin to understand how good he is, how wonderful he is. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for... Your incredible grace. What an amazing God you are. And Lord, we're trying, to, we're trying to look at guys like Jacob and we're trying to find reflections of ourselves in Jacob. And we're trying to understand how there's a little Jacob in all of us and that in the spiritual formation of our lives, Lord, you take us, you take our lives and you fashion and you work and you chip away and you make us more like Jesus Christ. And Lord, we just want to be like clay in the hand of the potter instead of like stone in the hand of the sculptor. Help us, oh God. We ask you in Jesus' name.
1: Lord God, I believe that we can look at Romans eight twenty eight through the lens of what we have just heard today, that you cause all things and you work all things for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. And we thank you, Lord, that all of the subplots, all of the different things that interact with our lives, whether we're aware of them or not, whether they're because of conscious choices we made, whether because they're wrong choices that we made. I thank you that you are so faithful and so merciful that you are continuing to use all circumstances for the purpose of shaping us, for the purpose of the main plot of becoming more and more uh, like you, burning more and more brightly for you, and more and more coming to know you. I thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness. That even when our faithfulness is low, you continue to work. You never stop. You never stop working. Thank you for meeting us here today, Lord. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day.